This is the show with Cannon Brown. When you can watch a young person be thrilled that their hard work has paid off and you were able to help them do that and reach that achievement, that is all the payback I need because that was me as a little kid. I just wanted to have some success, just wanted to, you know, enjoy it and be rewarded for hard work that I put in on something I was passionate about. That last few minutes might have been a little confusing. You'd like to know who I was talking to, wouldn't you? Hello, friends. My name is Cannon Brown, and you're listening to the show. I've got an incredible guest. His name is Mr. Raymond Gonnet. And yes, that is French. And yes, he is from Canada. But no, he is not French-Canadian. And don't you dare, don't you dare think to yourself, well... He's, he lives in, he's from Canada, but he has a French last name, so yeah, he is French-Canadian. It's not the same, okay? Don't you dare disrespect my man Raven like that. And if there are any French-Canadians listening, I'm so sorry to, to tell you this, but people don't like to be called that. So maybe you guys needed a new title, probably a better one. He's not French-Canadian. We talked about this a little bit too much already in the in this intro. Great cattle guy. He's the owner of Competitive Edge Genetics. Uh, he raises bulls for display. He raises bulls for semen sales. He sells private treaty calves. He does a whole bunch of stuff. He's got a passion for sharing his story, and I'm in. I'm just elated to have him on. It was a great interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. Follow me on my all. Uh, blah blah blah. <laughs> I can't talk. Follow me on all my social medias at the show pod. On Twitter, it's at the show underscore pod. And then uh, follow Raymond, too, uh, on Instagram. His personal one is at Diamond G Cattle. And then just search Competitive Edge Genetics for uh, his business one. And you guys will, I'm sure you guys will enjoy it. He's a great guy uh, to have on social media. Very funny. He's got great music to listen to. Good guy. All right. I talk too much. Let's do it. Mr. Raymond Gonet. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good. What What are you up to today? I we were texting earlier today, and you said you had to go to some grocery stores. You gonna You gonna get in a, get in your bunker pretty soon, or what? Yeah, we're just taking part in the uh, what seems to be mass hysteria right now. It is, dude. It's nuts. And I told you in a text, I, I that I'm a butcher at a local grocery store down here that. Most people that listen know that. I've talked about that before, and it's been absolutely crazy. But one thing that is good, grocery stores are ecstatic right now. <laughs> they don't have to do any ads. They don't have to do any learn, sales. I did learn one thing. I did learn one thing that I always thought was true, and that, that is that the organic is always the last to get picked up off the shelf. <laughs> exactly. The organic is the last. I, I've looked in my freezer section. And all the uh, all the Beyond Meat is still there. Um, yep. All the plant-based meat is still there. No one cares about it anymore. They're just looking for <laughs> beef and pork, cheap beef and pork. That's what they're looking for. It's been yep. pretty incredible. It's been just, what a wild couple days. Yeah, I, I honestly probably didn't anticipate it to get to this level as fast as it did, but I guess we're just all kind of on the roller coaster at this point. So Exactly. And odds are people are going to listen to this like six months down the road and 
somebody's gonna be like, why did they make a big fuss out of it? Nothing even happened. But <laughs> as of right now, there's a lot happening. Yes. We're just trying to stay with it, trying to stay on the roller coaster ride, like you said. But I mean, it happens. Now, uh, Raymond, how you're from Canada? Now, I've got a couple, yes. I've got a couple friends from Canada, and they are the most incredible people I've ever met in my entire life. When you sent me in a te- you sent in your outline. You're from A B Canada. Is that Alberta? What is that? Yes, yes, sir. Yep. Um, I actually grew up. Uh, an hour northwest of the capital city of Alberta, um, in a little town called Onaway. There was about 700 residents, <laughs> small town. Oh, wow. Uh, and so w- in relation to where that is uh, in the U.S. selection of things, uh, if I drove 13 hours straight north of Billings, Montana, you'd run right into my driveway. Really? That's yes. very That's very interesting, dude. I, I think people forget how huge Canada is. And that's pretty far yes. north up there, dude. <laughs> when I when I used to have some stock up there that if I'd ever sold anything down to the U.S. and we you know try to haul them down or whatever, it was a, it was a two day path usually to get to where I need to get to. It was a full day just to get them loaded at my house, get to the border, get through all the vets and all the stuff you had to do there, and just get into you know somewhere Great Falls or Billings for the night just to lay over. That was a full 16 hour day just to do that. <laughs> and then carry on. If they were in Iowa, there was another, you know, 14, 16 hours to get there yet. Gosh, dang dude. Is it hard getting livestock over the border from Canada? Um, it's actually relatively easy to get them from Canada to the U S versus the other way around. Um, Canada is to this point still TB free, brucellosis free and anaplasmosis free status. And so there's no blood work that needs to get pulled if the cattle were born and raised in Canada. You fill out a health certificate with your standard stuff from your vet and government-issued ID and a, a tattoo in their ear that says C-A-N for the country of origin. And, and it's just a regular health paper. And then you get a couple different copies from the CFIA, which is the equivalent of a USDA down here. And so you've got one to give to the border vet and one to keep with the cattle at all times and one to keep with whoever bought them. And... Away you go. Where down here, when I sell one to Canada now, they got to be TB tested. They got to send off blood for brucellosis and anaplasmosis, get negative test results back from the lab, then fill out a whole health certificate. And there's way more stuff to go with it in regulations. And it's usually three three weeks to get all that stuff done and then find a truck to get them to the border. And those blood tests are only good for 30 days. It's, yeah, it's a headache. <laughs> wow, that is that is more of a hassle than I expected it to be. Yes. Now, why is Canada free of all, like, those three things that you said? I, uh... Well, the reason that they're still that, that way, to my knowledge, is because they, you know, we've kind of eradicated those things. And they've continued to make people test any new livestock coming into the country for it so that we don't contract it again. Um, it's kind of how I understand it. So interesting. Um, they've just been very stringent on all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, maybe part of it, I guess in some parts of the country, probably because it's been so cold, it kills a lot of that stuff. So yeah, well, I was just <laughs> it's easier say, for, to, for, for you to get rid of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, you must get some big winters or uh, when you lived up there, there must've been some huge winters coming up. I mean, that's far North Canada. I, I have a, I have to expect yeah. that it's pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, I've remembered. Growing up as a kid, we'd had snow drifts piled up in the in the yard. I grew up on a feedlot, and uh, we'd have to push all the snow out of the alleyways and the, the yard, you know, so we could feed cattle and, and kind of 
go about our business. And I, I do. I remember as kids, I got two younger brothers, and we would build snow forts out of the snow drifts we had, full rooms and hallways and tunnels. You could walk right in them. I mean, the, the snow banks were 12 foot high. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we got snow on snow on snow. Please tell me you have some family portraits of those things. You know, I'd have to dig back. See, because I'm old enough now where we didn't really have a whole lot of digital <laughs> yeah, photographs true. and whatnot at that time of the year. That's really dating myself now that I think about it. My grandmother <laughs> had a, a big over-the-shoulder video VHS recorder that weighed about 42 pounds, and, and she probably took some video of us doing that stuff. But, uh, yeah, no, it's it's not like I can just scroll through my cell phone for couple of years and see if I got anything, but I'm sure there's some documentation of us, of us doing stuff like that. But no, we grew up on the farm. And so like most farm kids, uh, you got off the school bus and you helped chore and you had to find stuff around the farm to get creative with, to have any sort of fun. Cause your parents didn't let you do nothing. Cause they needed you to work on the farm for free. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why you <laughs> have free kids, labor. Right? <laughs> right. That's why you have kids for the free labor. Now, how many, yes, how many head did you guys have on your feedlot? Oh, it, it fluctuated from the start of when my dad started feeding cattle. Um, before I was born, he actually uh, worked at Farm Credit in town and then was also farming uh, on the side too, and then decided to quit that once I was born and just farm full time. And so he took over my grandfather's farm, which was on his side of the family, and uh, started building it up. And I would say at max capacity, we used to feed about 1,500 head. Um and like I said, that was pretty much just him. If the kids were going to school, I mean, we didn't have a hard hand or anything. It was oh, wow. It was him feeding them things all day long and taking care of them all day long by himself. Uh, my mom stayed home and took care of, you know, the house chores and whatever she could do to help him and, and the kids when we got off the school bus kind of thing. But uh, we also had about 2,000 acres of row crop as well, too. So um, between that and the cattle, which feedlot cattle, as you know, that's year-round. It doesn't stop. So, uh that's part of the reason why I wanted to start showing cattle as a kid, because that was my vacations. <laughs> we could leave to go to a cow show. I could get off the farm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, Jesus. I mean, 1,500 head of cattle and then 2,000 acres of row crop that he's just doing by himself. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot until you realize it's one person. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I like, mean, yeah, that's, that's plenty. It, that's where it went into perspective for me is when you said it's just him doing the work. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he my family worked hard that is for sure i was i was brought up that way is is you kind of put in the work and you get what you receive from how hard you work so he was he was definitely the one that taught us all that so well it had to be a good experience for you i know you probably didn't like it all the work some of the time but looking back now you're probably like gosh dang i i'm glad i did had that all that experience when i was younger growing up it might have sucked then but now i know a bunch now yeah i know absolutely just I mean, as far as being well-rounded in a lot of things, growing up on a farm that had not only livestock but row crop and, and other stuff, I mean, I've operated all kinds of equipment. I've, you know, I've done the feed yard side of things. I've done the the forage side of things. Uh, when I got out of college uh, and came back home, home uh, I'd worked for a few cow-calf operations, you know, previously too, but I started, you know, I brought in a cow-calf operation of my own with my dad once I got home too. So then we were kind of a, a three way deal as far as variety of what we did. And so when it hits now with what I do now, which I don't necessarily do a whole lot of either of those things at this point. Um, but just having that experience 
makes you all rounded in terms of my salesmanship now for what I do because I understand what a breeder's gone through to get that calf on the ground or I understand what that row crop farmer that needs that corn money to buy his kid's calf has to do or you know what what that all entails. I mean I'm well rounded enough to understand the, the bigger scope of the ag industry in general and I'm not just you know kind of focused on one area I get the whole picture because I've been involved in a lot of it so I say the best, that's the best way to go about it. I mean, if you're not just stuck on one detail or one specific thing and you can give it, get, give people all of your knowledge, all your well-rounded knowledge, I, I think they'd be more inclined to work with you and buy stuff from you or buy calves from you or anything like that. I mean, that, that gives you that experience that you had when you were younger gives you so much influence now. Right. No, I, I mean, I've learned probably my number one thing I've learned, uh, from from a salesmanship standpoint is the more comfortable you can make that customer feel and the more relatable you are to their situation, the better the whole process uh, goes. Because I know if I'm, if I'm purchasing something, I'm going to feel more comfortable with somebody that understands my situation. So um, like I said, with my background and, and kind of being well-rounded like that, I'm able to, you know, create situations for families in the show cattle mm-hmm. world that, you know, they can get the calf they want or they can get the service they need or whatever it might be. It might be semen on a bull to breed their calves, whatever it might be. But I can try to make them feel comfortable because I understand their situations, you know. Yeah. And you're, you're, you have two younger brothers, you said earlier, and they, do they still farm the family? Uh, yes, actually, uh, my middle brother, uh, and my younger brother together, actually, they've, they're kind of entrepreneurs. They've started their own little company here within the last couple of years doing some, Oh, my brother owns a floater, so he does a lot of fertilizer work and stuff like that. And so they kind of do that together a little bit. Youngest brother works for farm credit, kind of following in dad's footsteps as well. Um, but then they both farm, you know, part time, either helping him with my dad, um, still on the on the family farm. Um, but both of them have actually partnered on some land themselves now, and they're kind of doing their own thing as well. So um, me being the oldest, uh, obviously the. Tr- Tradition is the oldest gets, you know, the opportunity to take over the farm first. Um, I chose a different path because I was kind of more passionate about some other stuff, but it was kind of, it was nice to see them kind of step up and want to continue it. Um, actually, this summer, speaking of that, this summer, we just, I flew home to Canada in July. Um, the county actually awarded our family farm a centennial award for having that farm in our family's name for 100 years. So that was kind of cool. Wow! Now my youngest brothers are still continuing that on. So, yeah, that's in, that's incredible. Just they're gonna continue to build on to the legacy that's already there. I mean, you, like you said, they're I mean right. they're buying land by themselves now. I mean they're gonna they're trying to expand a little bit. You said they're entrepreneurial. I, I'd say all three of you are a little entrepreneurial. <laughs> I mean, I, I say dad and <laughs> yeah, dad we and mom taught you well. Yeah. Yes. Now, including uh, working on the farm and working on the feedlot growing up, you were also in 4-H and, and you showed some cattle. Um, mm-hmm. How did you get in that? Obviously, growing on the growing up on the uh, on the farm, you had experience. But did your parents show when they were younger? Or did they have any experience in the show industry? Well, uh, actually, my my dad did show in 4-H as well as his. Uh, he had two brothers as well. Um, they weren't, I mean, obviously back in his time when 4-H was going on, it's nothing like it is, especially down in the U.S. now as far as 
uh, jackpot shows every weekend and all yeah. this other extra stuff. It was pretty standard. Just, you know, you, you fed your calf out and you showed it at your 4-H achievement day, you know. Um, so when I started, um, I started with in the first year of eligibility in Canada was nine years old. And so they, of course, wanted, you know, me to enroll in it because he had done it and it was a good experience for him. And not just the livestock part of it. Obviously, we know the public speaking side of things and all the other life skills you can learn in 4-H. They, they, they were parents that obviously wanted us to stay involved in agriculture. And they knew that if they got us involved in 4-H, that was probably uh, going to be a helpful tool for us to, to, you know, learn more about it. So actually, funny story. So this is this is how I first, I guess, personally realized I had the bug, so to speak. Um, in our county we had a 4-H club that they'd have like their annual mini, they call it like the mini achievement day, uh, which is basically all the families would gather at one family's farm. It would kind of alternate throughout the years and everybody would bring their calf over. And it was usually about, you know, a month and a half or two months before our actual achievement day where we would, you know, show them and it was a terminal deal and we'd have the sale of champions and whatever. Everybody would bring their calf over and we'd have like a little mock show and practice showmanship and they'd have a, grooming clinic and whatever and then they you know everybody go in the house and we'd have a meeting and a dinner or whatever and it was just a great big get together and all the local families that were in the club would, would do that and uh i was eight at the time i remember this because they they were very wanting me to be interested but they were very certain that out there like just so you know you can't start yet so don't don't get too far ahead of yourself anyways long story short everybody has, has done the show they're in the house they're having the meeting i'm too young for the meeting i know i can't join I had wandered off back outside by myself, hadn't told anybody, and and uh, I don't actually remember this, but they said they went looking for me, couldn't find me. Everybody kind of realized, well, where's Raymond at, you know? And uh, they went back out to the barnyard where the calves were all tied up, and I had untied somebody's calf, and I was walking around practicing <laughs> by myself, completely unattended. <laughs> and of course, they panicked and freaked out. They're like, "What do you What do you think you're doing out here? You could have been hurt, and this and that." And, they realized pretty quick that this kid wants to show cattle. So, um, growing up, I, uh, I was famous for drawing cattle on my homework in school. And I was always talking about, I was obsessed with cattle from, from day one, from the time I could talk. And, uh, my first 4-H calf was actually a calf we picked out of a load of feeders that came in. Actually the first probably five or six of them were that way. Um, and he was a red and white flag V Semmental. Big, coarse, made, I mean, absolute horrific-looking animal <laughs> when I look back at it. But but at the time, I mean, in Canada at the time, the Fleck B. Semmental thing was hot back then. I mean, that we're talking like, you know, early 90s. That was kind of the thing then. You know, they were big, growthy cattle. So, anyways. It was uh, a trend. I mean, we, we, go, we go through these trends so much. And, I mean, you yes. can look back on it and think now, like, oh, that looks really, really bad compared to today. But. Back then, I mean, that's just what it was. You were just showing what you were. Right. Like, it wasn't a right. – it's so weird how he, the he, – He weighed in at like 1,500 pounds every day. Like he's a monster. You know? Yeah, exactly. And he's, he's like nine thrilled. foot tall. Right. So that was kind of my introduction to it. And after that, uh, honestly, I mean, my, my parents always supported me in the showing stuff. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't. But I think they could tell within the first year or two that they had a wild Mustang on their hands. Like I was all about it. I was going to go way harder than they wanted me to. I was foot to the floor. 
I learned pretty quick. I've got two younger brothers, which means I can buy three steers and three heifers because they need one too. Yeah. And uh, I used to pick a lot of the steers out of the feedlot. Uh, there'd be a pot roll down the driveway, and I'd be right out there on the loading gate waiting for them to come off the truck, hoping there'd be one in there that would look like a show calf. Um, at the time, it was just instinct. What I thought looked, you know, show ready or looked, you know, had any sort of something to them. My parents never coached me with that at all. They didn't have that kind of a background. Um, for whatever reason, I just kind of had the knack for it because we were very successful with even just, like I said, just stuff that we found in the feed yard. Um, my dad has a degree in agriculture and was very talented at feeding cattle. And I took a lot of his knowledge and advice, you know, growing up doing that. And I mean, he could make a, he, he made his living a lot of times off of buying scrubs and sickly looking stuff that was docked <laughs> at the sale barn that nobody else wanted. Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, by the time they hit the fat truck, they looked like they could have won a county fair a lot of times. They were fat, and they looked good, and he was great at that. So that helped us for the most part. But three or four years in, um, I went to a local fair in the summer, and they had a prospect steer show, baby calves. And um, that was where I saw the first main Anjou steer that – I gravitate. I was like, "What is that? That looks different than anything else. It's got more hair and more bone than anything Semmental Angus I've ever seen." You yeah. know, and that's when I started to. I had another neighbor that had a semen sales business. He worked for ABS, and he he'd give me the catalogs, and I started to gravitate towards the club calf section. And I've just I was always drawn to the mains and the club calf thing because they just looked so different. And that's when I, that's when I really stepped into another level and thought, you know, this is the direct, I want to not just show cattle. I want show cattle to show. And once I had my driver's license at 16, it was all over. Then I was trying to sell them to other families and going to jackpot shows. And it just, it flourished from there. And I had a lot of families along the way that I got to show with growing up that, that helped that did it, you know, kind of, you know, they used to do it with their families and their families did it, you know, as far as growing up in it. And got to work with a lot of those type of people, and that kind of helped because obviously my background was none of that. But like I said, my parents supported me the whole time. This is what you want to do, you know. You're talented at it, go do it. And yeah. I've been fortunate to kind of turn it into what I have now. Well, I, dude, I think that's awesome. And there's a couple things that I want to go back to. First thing, you threw a lot of stuff at me, uh, so I appreciate yeah, I did. That. I uh, like to ramble if you haven't noticed. No, I like it, dude. This is the best place. This is the best place. If you want to ramble, I'll give you the floor, buddy. You're good to go. But I I thought it was really cool how when you were learning to show and you kind of got the bug, you would just sit at the at the pots just waiting for cattle to come out into the feed yard. And I like how you just kind of went into instinct mode. Your your family didn't or your your mom and dad didn't really have any judging experience per se. So you're just like, "You know what? I've seen what I've seen at the shows." Let's see if I can pick that out here and, and see what I can do with it. I think that's an incredible way to learn how to pick livestock. Just kind of going on what you like and what you think is and good, and you can kind of formulate back and forth what what you think as you go to shows. But I, I'm it very was, jealous. It was always like, what was the one that like your gut instinct told you that one don't look like the rest of them? Yes, like, exactly. What's the one that raises the hair on your arms and you're like, I. I just want to tie that thing up and see what I can create. And that's what I always gravitated to. I, I, I gravitate still to this day. Um, I don't think that I'm necessarily the most conservative 
I, I gravitate to the ones with the extras. Because to me, if you can have one with the extra, everybody can have a regular car. But if you can have a regular car with a spoiler and shine it and a bigger motor, like why wouldn't you want one, right? Yep. So, so that's I just from the start, if I was in a pen full of cattle, it's what's the one that sticks out to me. I never computed why does it stick out or makes it that way. It was just honest to goodness, just flat out. God give me stick. I do not understand it to this day. But when one hits me, it hits me, and I gotta have it. It's like an addiction. <laughs> Dude, I mean, that's how people are. That's uh, uh, if if you love what if you love what you do, that's how it feels. I mean, you you love buying cattle. You love looking for the good ones. A lot of people like doing that for other species, and a lot of pe- a lot of people like doing that for cattle. I mean, there's there's cattle buyers. That's a profession. You can just go be a cattle buyer if you want to do that. That's right. incredible. <laughs> But uh, I just, I mean, I, I love that aspect of, of that, uh, of that story of you kind of coming up together and a lot, a lot of those and... things too. Like I said, a lot of those things, I didn't realize it until we're talking, like you and I are talking right now, and I think back to where it started and at the during those periods of time, and that's what I try to tell the younger generation too. You might not know how much talent you really have until it's ten years down the road, and you're going. And look back here, when I did this, this, or this, I didn't even know that I was doing it, you know? Yeah. And there it was. <laughs> it was The writing was on the wall the whole time, but you didn't even know it. So don't ever limit yourself. That's, I guess, kind of my little preachy moment there. As, as a kid growing up, if you have natural instincts like that and you can go off of a vibe or a feeling – do it like it doesn't matter what it has to do with follow that because that is literally god-given talent and you have it and you might as well not let it get wasted yeah exactly now did you do any judging uh in 4-h or or, or after yeah 4-H at all? basically just just pretty much standard judging contest 4-h judging contest actually i did make the cut at the provincial level which is obviously in canada we have provinces versus states down here um, I can't remember what, honestly, that was a long time ago. This is still, I was in high school. I think I was a senior in high school. Um, but I won a trip, uh, for placing in the top, whatever it might've been three or five or whatever it was, um, at the provincial judging contest. And we got a trip to judge at the Nile in Billings, Montana, actually. Oh, nice. And, uh, we went down there and took part in that contest. And that's where I learned very quickly that uh, U.S. judging contests are completely different than anything I'd ever done. Reasons sounded nothing like we did. We sounded very robotic and generic, and I placed one over two and two over three. And the people taking our reasons were like, okay, this one's clearly not from this country because he doesn't get it. But it was a great experience. We had a blast and, and got to look through the cattle there and, and whatnot. But as far as my judging career as a, as a kid growing up, it's nothing like it is down here. There's no colleges that take a judging course, really. I mean, it's, your FFA program down in the U.S. is completely um, non-existent. There's nothing like it in, in Canada, which is unfortunate because I think it's a great program, too. We have 4-H, but it's it's even our 4-H is still not to the level of, of what it is down here. So um, did no, a little there's bit There's no ag classes like in, that, like, high school in Canada? Zero. Wow. Zero. 
Why don't they? There's, there's some those? junior colleges that are egg 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 related. Okay. Now, I went to one of those for a year. Um, that's basically it's basically like if you get through high school and you still want to be a farmer because you didn't get ridiculed long enough, <laughs> yeah, and you still seriously. have some backbone and you want to stay in it. Uh, here's a junior college you can go to and learn how to plant crops and feed cattle. Um, during yeah during high school, uh, there is no. Nothing. I mean, shop class is about as close as you'll get to any sort of of ag related stuff that you could even correlate to it. Actually, funny story, real quick. Shop class for me, senior year, my senior project, we had to come up with something to build, and that was like fifty percent of our mark. I built a calving shed because a I needed one, and b I knew how to build it. So that was my like at all times I was trying to hook something into my farm to do it so that I could kind of make things work. So. You had to make it work. I mean, they're going to give you some time to build. You got to, you got to make the most of your time. Right. Cabin season was coming. I needed to shed. <laughs> exactly, dude. I find that wild that there's no ag classes in high school in Canada. Has do you know if there's been any like um, effort to try? I just to... don't think there's any. I just don't think there's any infrastructure whatsoever for an ag teacher. Like there's no there's no ag teachers even being brought into this picture. I mean, it's just wow. not even a thing. And especially in a country that, especially in the western side of the country, I can only really speak for that side because that's kind of the side I grew up on, obviously. Ag is a huge chunk of the economy, like yeah. probably 50% at least. So for them not to be trying to access you know, younger minds at that age, trying to teach them about ag, even just from an educational standpoint, not even trying to you know keep them involved in it, but just I mean, teach any kid about agriculture, there's none of that. It's and and honestly, until I I become more involved down in the U.S., it didn't even it wasn't even relevant. I, I didn't even think that that would be a thing. You know, I didn't even understand why there would ever be that until I learned how integrated it is down here. And I'm like, wow, why don't we have that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and we're we uh, complain daily about how there's not enough ag teachers in the U.S. and there's not an right. there's not enough ag pro, ag programs for students in the U.S. But, gosh, we've re, I yeah. Like, if you'd if you'd asked me when I was 14 years old uh, if I had an ag teacher, I'd have laughed. I said, well, I, "What is that? I don't even know what that is." <laughs> Dang, that's no such crazy. thing up here. <laughs> that's crazy to me. I'm like dumbfounded. Have you um, you, you watched Letter Kenny? I have seen some snippets of it. Uh, I have not actually watched. I probably watched more Trailer Park Boys than I have Letterkenny, to be oh, honest with you. Raymond, but I'm familiar with what it is. Yeah, I just whenever you said, "Yeah, I grew up in like a small town in Canada with about 700 people," my mind immediately went to uh, <laughs> uh, what 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 is Letterkenny? Yeah, I've got some friends that have obviously made a yeah. Now Trailer Park Boys send uh, clips of that stuff. Like, hey, is this really what it's like back there? <laughs> yeah. Trailer Park Boys is uh, Nova Scotia. That's like the East Coast, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Oh my gosh, dude, that's a f- I that show is incredible. It's it's gone downhill the past couple seasons. It's one it, of mine. <laughs> those like first five seasons are nuts. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty much part of the initiation to be a Canadian is you have to have watched at least the first four seasons of Trailer Park Boys to understand our culture. Exactly, dude. It's a, oh my gosh. I thought I was going to, I really You have to watch that and you have to watch, uh, you have to watch Don Cherry's Hockey Night in Canada. Otherwise you're not Canadian. 
Don't I don't count. think I've seen that. <laughs> I might have to watch that. I'm not Canadian, but I want to be integrated. Oh, yeah. See, see that's what that is, is, is Hockey Night Canada was every Saturday night during hockey season. They'd have this, this thing in the intermission called Coach's Corner, and this guy, Don Cherry, who now he's been fired, we won't even get into that. He made some comments, and uh, like I said, not even going to get into it. He would go on these rants, and he would – it could be about certain hockey players. It could be about something in society, but it was great. Everybody loved it because it was like unsolicited, just I'm going to vent on national television, and it was Hockey Night in Canada. And if, if you were in the house and you were watching Hockey Night in Canada, you watched Coach's Corner. So it's just like a super Canadian thing, obviously, because you've never even heard of it. So. <laughs> have to be a Canadian to know about that one. Well, and I don't watch too much hockey either, so I might be out of the loop. And I can't tell you that I've watched very much of it since moving down here either because they don't really televise it. No, that's uh, they, they really <laughs> it's don't. It's not very popular anymore. They really don't. You know who's uh, – you know Kyle Vagey? Yes. Yep, I'm familiar yep. with him. Yeah, he's uh, – I've had him on here, and we talked uh, extensively about hockey. I think we talked for like – like at least 15 minutes about him playing hockey and how incredible it was so if kyle's listening right now he's i'm he's probably the only listener that's having a really good time he might know what hockey night in canada is then he he might have checked that out he might have i think i I mean he's like a team captain he was uh he's basically the goon on, on the squad i mean he was just trying to hit people that does not surprise me one bit it didn't surprise me either honestly kyle is a He's just a wild guy. I love him. Yes. Now, um, after 4-H, you you attended one of those junior colleges that we we were just talking about, like those agriculture junior colleges. Yes. Tell. Yep. Explain yep. one of those to me, because obviously, I mean, is it just like a, an ag junior college in the U.S. or pretty similar? Yeah, absolutely. Like they had a college farm, and there was cows and some row crop stuff, and we'd take you know soils classes and cow calf operation classes and. And all those kind. Of, that college also offered other. There was business stuff and other areas they could focus on too. But they actually had a whole college farm, and I mean, we did night calving checks as part of our, you know, one of our classes and stuff like that. So oh, it, it was a good cool. experience. Uh, I probably had too much fun in college, if we're being honest. Um, spend more time at cattle shows and clipping sale bulls to pay for college to where I wasn't going to class enough <laughs> to really make it justifiable. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the stuff for me, because I was obviously I was raised in a household where my dad had a lot of knowledge and I, I retained a lot of it. So for me, a lot of the stuff was like almost too basic and kind of boring for me. Cause I was like, yep, I know this already. And there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know. Don't get me wrong, but I'd already kind of had my mind made up as to what I wanted to do and what I was interested in and what I was passionate about. So to me, I'm like, I'm paying to listen to somebody tell me how to do something that I know I'm never going to do because I don't want to do that. I don't want to plant a thousand acres of canola. I, I don't want to do that. So I made the choice to not finish my second year and just try to start building my own deal. And, and I started working for a couple of different seed stock operations, actually, that were kind of right around that area because it was close in proximity. And... Um, those were great experiences for, for me. There was an Angus outfit that I worked for for a little bit. And then there was a, another place that had Limmy's and Angus as well. Uh, there was a Semental outfit in there actually while I was during, during college, while I was working there. Um, all great people, families, awesome. I mean, all of the experience I took from all of that, 
like I said, that added to my well-rounded kind of experience of everything in agriculture. So that was really good and uh, kind of set me up to kind of go back home when I was ready and, and kind of grow my own personal deal. So, yeah, well, it's important to kind of work on those uh, peer rate operations just right out of college, just kind of get your foot in the door and, and figure some stuff out. I'm sure that's what you were kind of trying to do, just trying to get your foot in the door and, and, uh, before you actually wanted to start your own thing. Absolutely. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, after you worked on those, um, kind of seed stock operations, you moved back home and you wanted to buy some cows, start your own deal. Um, mm-hmm. what kind of pushed you to do that? I know there sometimes there's like a little push that you're like, okay, I got to stop messing around on this. Got to stop thinking about it. It's time to do it. Did you have kind of one of those pushes? Yeah, there was kind of one of those moments that kind of happened. Uh, what it was is um, I'd started a club calf sale with a, another younger gentleman um, by the name of Dustin Lamb, very good friend of this day. Um, and at the time, again, like I said, we're sitting back and reflecting on it now. We were the first ones to ever have like a private treaty bid-off club calf sale in Canada. It was like unheard of at the time. Nobody really? did that. I mean, we, we patterned it off of – the bid-offs that were known in the U.S. because we kind of tapped into that market of like following along with it. And trying, to, We were kind of trying to be trendsetters at the time. So so we started a bid board and, and we offered calves for sale. And that's kind of when I, I started to think, you know, I want to – he was raising all his mostly. So um, I was like, man, I want to – I don't want to just trade some. I want to kind of raise some of my own as well. And so there was a one of the more prominent club calf herds um, – they were actually from Saskatchewan, from the neighboring province to the east of Alberta. And uh, they had moved over to southern Alberta and in the process were kind of rearranging their, their lives, so to speak, and kind of wanted to, to get out of the cows. And so an opportunity arrived where it's kind of the right place, right time for me. I was ready to kind of come home. And they were going to offer the whole cow herd. And they were looking at somebody that wanted to just buy the whole thing outright. And they had – this was like – late summer so they had calves on them at side and they were all rebred and i could buy all the cows in calf all the calves at side which would give me calves to sell immediately that fall and the whole bull battery you name it and like this is i'm talking this is a herd that um they've raised all kinds of actually here's one that that would probably draw some sort of recognition down here they actually raised the bull wasn't me way back in the day the old key bull wasn't me okay so that herd, like I had, wasn't me's sister. I had, had like some old bull. There's a lot of key and key Angus, key main cows is what it was. And there was about 100 of them. And uh, I talked my dad into coming down and looking at them. And uh, he actually stepped up to the plate with me and said, let's, you know, let's do it together. I'll, we'll take out a loan. We'll buy these cows. And at the time, I had about 30 cows at home, which were mostly retired show heifers and the odd one that I would have bought in a bread heifer sale here or there or whatever. And so I added this to them and we, we got up close to about 150 cows and started, you know, AIing on them. And, and how I'd have a spring sale, um, kind of in June and I'd sell kind of whatever I thought was the earlier born ones that were maybe had the most potential early on. You kind of want to sell those at the peak of their, their career right then so that they can go somewhere for another trader to kind of trade on them again. So I'd have that sale, and then I'd have another sale in the fall with Dustin that we'd offer, you know, calves for 4-H kids in the fall too. So doing that, that was, like I said, that was kind of my moment where I just kind of happened to walk into a great opportunity to buy a proven cow herd already 
and added it to the already kind of small proven herd I had. And vamp things up and start raising a bunch of them. So um, I'm still to this day thankful that that kind of happened when it did, and that my dad stepped up with me and, and helped me do that too. So it was a lot to it was a lot to bite off because, like I said, we were still feeding cattle. We had to make an adjustment around there for pen spaces and stuff like that. And um, I ended up taking a job with John Deere full time so that I could kind of help pull my weight around there money wise. So yeah, exactly. Um, calving season was kind of a struggle running back and forth from work and but everybody everybody pitched in and it was it was really fun to do that um and kind of grow the herd it wasn't until the point where i was kind of at that breaking point where i, I realized like i i want to do this full time but like a little different i want to chase the you know the show side of things a little harder and the industry in canada was it was good don't get me wrong it was good but it was nowhere near the level that it is down here where you can pretty much show year-round um, just the whole infrastructure of everything is so much more. You just, it's huge down there. That's the yeah, only way to describe it's it is huge. And so I decided to quit my job and told my parents that we were selling the cow herd and I was moving south of the border to chase the dream. And they told me I was crazy, well, <laughs> which I was at the time, <laughs> to pack up like that. I, I literally, I mean, I moved to Iowa. I took a job down there uh, with an outfit uh, at the time was called Troush Farms. And I literally showed up there with two or three suitcases. And I had them haul seven donor cows that I'd kept down with me. And that, I mean, I showed up with that. That's what I had to my name. I had my clothes and a couple cows. Start over. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. It, it was at the time I didn't think nothing of it, but now looking back, I'm like, man, that was ballsy. What were you thinking? That could have gone so wrong. <laughs> That's a, I mean, those are those moments though when you look back and you're like, that could have gone really wrong, but I'm glad I made that decision. I'm sure your parents were freaking out when you told them you were going to move. Well, it was a, it was a time in my life where I was young enough. I wasn't married. I wasn't tied down to anything necessarily. It was like this is do or die. Either I try this and I fail, or I try it and I actually get to do what I love and turn it into something. And I, if I don't try it, I'm the type of person that I'm going to resent that for the rest of my life that I didn't give my chance, you know, give myself that opportunity. So I just said I'm going to try as hard as I can and hope if I do that, the stars will align and somehow I'll make it out above water so so what, far so good <laughs> what job did you pick up in iowa so um i actually went down and started working for troush's basically just as a everyday labor salesperson um when it came to selling cattle and like clipping them for shows and whatnot i did i did a lot of that um, did a lot of semen sales stuff they had a, a whole semen sales business as well with herd bulls and ai bulls and stuff like that so I just kind of integrated myself into that, traveled all over the country, met thousands of great, great people. Um, a lot of those people that I actually met through that job are, are still friends and customers now. Um, built really good relationships with them too. So um, that's where I kind of started out down here and uh, stayed there for a few years and kind of wanted to start something a little different as well. So the gradual... Uh, progression to kind of wanted to break out on my own again so did that started uh competitive edge genetics in it would have been the fall of 
2013 technically is kind of we, we we launched in March of 2014, but it, we started planning for it like in January. So okay, basically, yeah. right at the start of the new year, um, I had some investors get involved with me. Thankfully, that you know that kind of when you start from scratch, uh, investors are kind of nice because they have capital that can help you kind of get the supplies you need, whether it be exactly. pools. I mean, we we needed any we didn't have semen tanks. We didn't have we had, we started from scratch. So. Um, I relied a lot on my customers and the relationships I built with them to, Hey, hope you guys still want to do business because I'm going to try some new stuff here and, and build a new thing here. And I'd love to have you guys along. So kind of grew that to where we are now. So, well, and you kind of, when you first moved to Iowa, you worked for that, for those guys and you did some semen sales, but you had some, um, prior knowledge to semen sales in Canada, didn't you? Yeah, I'd kind of like I said when I moved back home with that cow herd. I'd st- because I was running enough cows, and I had a lot of other guys that were wanting AI, and it was starting to pick up up there. The club calf thing was, it's it's still nowhere near what it is down here. Like I said, but it was starting to kind of pick up, and uh, I saw a need for somebody to bring in, you know, some club calf stuff that wasn't just like leftover stuff that nobody else wanted. So. I started my own semen sales business with kind of carting some stuff around. I would try to campaign some people that had a bull in Denver. Hey, I really like that bull. Would you test him for Canada? I'd, you know, I'll handle the semen on the bull, stuff like that. So I, I kind of try to start do some of that just, just for my own self so that I could get some of those genetics into my own herd. And in doing that, I was able to sell some to other people as well. So, um, yeah, that definitely started, uh, back when I was in Canada, I actually raised, um, a display bull. It was in Denver in 2009 by the name of Blindside, that was actually this. I think it was the second year that Monopoly calf crop was on the ground. He was a Monopoly son, and uh, I raised that bull, and he went on to sell down here to Iowa. Uh, Goddard's actually bought him, and at the time they were kind of doing the same thing, selling semen on bulls and whatnot. So, like I said, when I started in Canada, that was kind of where it grew from. Was for me raising a few of those bulls, and then getting a big enough herd to where I wanted to get some new genetics. So. I kind of had some background in it for sure. Yeah. And you, uh, you start competitive edge genetics in, in, uh, 13 or 13, 14 around, around mm-hmm. that time. And I like how, uh, we were talking earlier about how, how you like cattle. You like, um, you like them with a little bit of extra something. And when you were, when you were talking about it, it occurred to me that the perfect word for that something is the competitive edge. Like you, you like cattle with a competitive edge. And I just thought that was kind of ironic that that's your company name is the competitive edge genetics. So, I mean, you kind of, and you'll, you'll never guess this. I literally, people have asked me, well, where did you come up with the name? It's, it's such a good name or, you know, the logo looks, it's so simple. Everybody can figure it out when they see it. I was literally driving down the interstate, I 80 in Iowa one day. I don't even know what was on the radio. Might have been a radio. I don't know. I heard the words competitive edge and I was like, that's it. That's the name of the company. That's what I want to call it. It was like totally out of the blue. There was no thought process behind it whatsoever. I heard it and it stuck and I just ran with it. Those are the best ideas, dude. When you can, you, when you get those driving ideas that just hit you like a ton of bricks and you just have to roll with them. Those are the best ideas. Yep. Now, when you started competitive edge genetics, what did you want it to be? Well, well initially, to, it, I basically just wanted to do do the semen sales side of thing a little bit, you know, have some promotional sires, but also offer cattle for sale so I could kind of do the full circle of life. When it came to selling the semen to a customer, 
I could then offer them an avenue to, to market their offspring through me. Whether they were out of a bull of mine or not, it didn't matter. I've never cared. I just wanted to help offer them that opportunity. And so if I can sell their cattle for them, then they're more inclined to want to buy semen from me because they can sell their calves to me too. So all of that kind of looped together, and that's why I kind of wanted to do both sides of it, just to kind of, like I said, to kind of complete the circle of life, so to speak. Now, what, what aspect of the of it do you like more? Do you like the show aspect, or do you like kind of the bull side of it, selling, selling semen? Um, I'll be honest. I get an adrenaline rush from selling, selling anything. I, the same thing when I was working at John Deere. When I make a sale, it could be a lawnmower, it could have been an $80,000 skid steer. It didn't matter. I love completing a sale. It's, yeah. it's just my fixation with that. I don't know what it is, but it's just kind of a feel-good moment, right? To know that you've helped somebody get something that they you know, need or want. So part of me likes, I guess, the selling cattle side of it more and kind of going to the shows to help. A lot of it is, is the relationships. Like I said, you build with these people. The smile on that kid's face when they achieve something is irreplaceable. It doesn't matter if it was my kid, your kid, neighbor's kid, does not matter. When you can watch a young person be thrilled that their hard work has paid off and you were able to help them do that and reach that achievement, that is all the payback I need because that was me as a little kid. Just wanted to have some success, just wanted to you know enjoy it and be rewarded for hard work that I put in on something I was passionate about. So for me, that's probably my most favorite part. But I do love all the aspects. I mean, I love displayable in Denver and and showing off what I think is the next genetic package that that I think can offer the industry something. Um, I love traveling around in the spring, semen sales, and meeting with breeders and making breeding recommendations and seeing baby calves that I think can make potential prospects in the fall. I love every aspect of what I do. Do not get me wrong. But if I had to pick one that is the most rewarding back for me, it's when I'm able to help a family achieve success in the show ring, because that is, that's why we raise them. That's why we breed them. That's why we do all this stuff is to, to reach that end point is that accomplishment. So when those are reached, those are very special moments. Well, I, I mean, I genuinely believe you because I mean, you've, you've been talking this whole time about what show, what the show experience did for you and how it created just a passion in you that hasn't stopped yet. So for you to be searching and seeking that out for other kids and, and other families, I think it's very, very it's it's awesome of you to do that. And I think most breeders and producers of livestock think that way as well. Um, hopefully all of them. Hopefully all of them think that way as well. <laughs> no, for sure. I, I'm a firm believer in, in you have to love what you do and you have to be passionate about it because otherwise you're just putting in time. Yep. So. I feel like it shows in my work and in my livestock and in the relationship I've got. They know that I I love this. I eat, sleep, and breathe it. You know, it, it, if you have a problem and it's ten thirty at night and and your calf's doing this or that, I want to help you because I want the end result to be as good as possible. And that's what you do when you love what you do. You it, you don't rest. You do what it takes and at all times. And so I try to do that for everyone. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give out your socials real quick? I, I mean, you've got, dude, you've got so many followers on it. Well, I've got can... a lot of different ones. So, yes. <laughs> uh, I've actually got, I've got like a personal Instagram account, which I, I do a lot of uh, competitive edge related livestock on there as well. But that's basically my personal Instagram is basically, if you want to follow a day in the life of me, Raymond Gane, 
follow that. If you want to follow all updates on competitive edge genetics, there is also a separate Instagram account of that, um, which mainly focuses just on the livestock. Um, so my personal one is at Diamond G Cattle. And, and uh, if you frequent that, you'll see a lot of calf pictures, uh, Nike shoes, and probably some rap music yes, and my dude. dogs. Yes. That's pretty much that's pretty much the grasp of that one. The other one is mainly updates on bulls, show winners, and uh, anything that's, I, I guess, a big press release for the company, which is fine. I, I try to do two separate things for two reasons. One, um, I think it's obviously important to have social media for your business to keep people in tune with it. The reason I've kept my personal one and I update as much as I do is I want to, I want those people to feel like they know me. You know, I'm not just a name on a page that owns a company. I want you to understand me as a human being that these are what my interests are. This is what I like to do. Here's my, my dogs. Here's, here's a photo of my girlfriend at Christmas. I'm a real person too, you know? And th what that creates is they get more of an understanding of, of who I am and I've actually had people come up to me and tell me that, you know, oh, uh, people I don't even know. I, I was at a show uh, last year, actually. I had someone walk up to me at the Sullivan's trailer. I was getting some clipper blades. And they're like, oh, uh, I recognize you. I think I follow your dog, Nash, on Instagram. I'm like, <laughs> no, you follow me, but I have a dog named Nash that I post frequently. So, yes. And so it's just funny. Like, they get that experience where they, they feel like they're connected to something because they know my dog's name. You know, yeah. something like that. They, they they gravitate towards a lot of these kids are inspired by people in my position. They get to do what I do for a living and, and they look up to me and they want to do what I do one day, maybe, you know, so if they can feel like they really know me without knowing me, they might have never met me, but they can feel some sort of connection because, oh, I listen to that song, too. Or, oh, I have a pair of Nikes that are just like that. Or I have an Australian Shepherd, too, or. That's a cool uh, fit job on a calf. I, I want to learn how to do that. If I can inspire anybody in any sort of way, I'm going to do that. So that's why I've always kept the two accounts, and that's why. So like I said, the personal one is at Diamond G Cattle. That was my old cattle company back when I lived in Canada. And uh, the other one is Competitive Edge, at Competitive Edge Bulls, um, at Competitive Edge Genetics. You can search either one of those because I think there's a Twitter account that's a little bit different wording. But if you search Competitive Edge, you'll find it. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, they're pretty popular accounts. Um, I wish I was good at social media so that I could be as good as you. Um, and also, I'm very glad I hadn't said your last name yet because I would have butchered it. I promise you. <laughs> okay, so here's, an, here's, here's another one. So uh, it's spelled Garnet, pronounced Garnet, and you can obviously imagine. Everyone assumes that because it's spelled French – that I'm French-Canadian because everyone thinks, oh, <laughs> French-Canadian, you're from Canada. No, I have France, like literally from the country France ancestors. That's where my name originates, yes. But I'm not French-Canadian. There yes. is no, literally nobody in my family speaks French. <laughs> like none of us. We're from Western Canada, farmers mostly like it. We're not French-Canadian. There's a huge difference. But, yes, I do have ancestry from France. It's a very original name, actually. You can't find that name anywhere else in North America. If you search my last name, you'll come up with just people and family. That's it. That's um, awesome, I think actually. in France, there's it's more common. But there's you can't If you search my last name in the U.S., to my knowledge, the only people that will come up is me and my closest relatives that still have the last name. So 
I wish I had a name last, like that. My last name is Brown. It's like the sixth most common last Ooh, name. Ooh, that will give you a lot of search results, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's like the worst last name to have, basically, except for like White and uh, Johnson. Johnson, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's. I just think uh, I've got a buddy that's um, he, he's from he lived in Toronto for a while. Um, okay. Yep. Lived his whole life in Toronto, but his family still owns a lot of land in France. So when he came down here and I met him, he's uh, he goes to school with me down here in Arizona. But uh, I was like, oh, well, you're French-Canadian. I, you're, you are French, and then you lived in Canada. And he – that's the maddest I've ever seen Toronto him. Toronto was a lot closer to Quebec, so yeah. that is a lot more believable. He could have been French-Canadian. He didn't, he didn't want any part of it. He didn't want any part of it. No, most of us, of if, we're, if we're not French-Canadian, we respond exactly like that. Absolutely yeah. not. Why would you ever think that? How yeah. could you? How dare you? <laughs> I'm like, all right, bud. Sorry. Sorry. I'll calm down. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, dude, I love your uh, playlist too. By the way, you've got. I, I try. To, I try to keep people entertained. <laughs> see, the the reason why I like you is because I, I look at your social medias and I'm like, okay, he's a cattle guy, and then I look at your social media and I'm like, but he's into sneakers, and then <laughs> he's got like a really really good Spotify playlist that has got it's got like really good rap songs on it. So you're hitting all my things right here, and I'm like, "Who is this guy? Like, why aren't we friends?" <laughs> I try, I try to live life as if I was a cattle jock rock star. So to yes, speak. that's that's the mindset. You have I love to it. Love what you do. You have to be hype. You have to because let's be honest, a lot of this stuff is extremely exhausting and tiring, and there's a lot of long hours in a truck driving or hours at the shoot dressing cattle. And I, I played basketball in high school, I'm not going to lie. And that's probably where I kind of started to, to get my fondness of rap, hip-hop music. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of comes to the territory. So it stuck with me, and, and I've continued to, to grow that, and I've just always been interested in it. I think that a lot of people think that some of that music isn't okay, and that's fine. They're allowed to think that. I honestly don't really pay attention to most of the lyrics. It's 100% about how the beat makes It's me always feel. the beat. I, I'm all about energy. Yeah. Um, I love good energy. I love hype energy. I'm a very positive person. I'm a very um, cheerful, uplifting type of personality for the most part. And so a lot of the music that I try to share with my followers is stuff like that so that they can kind of feel the same vibe that I'm feeling. You know, it's it's about waking up and wanting to get after it kind of yeah. a thing. So, Yeah, that's – dude, that's how I feel about rap music. I've – I grew up with – my dad was a city slicker and my mom – we own – we had a family-owned dairy on my mom's side, and that marriage didn't last too long <laughs> because they came from different backgrounds. <laughs> but one thing my dad did give me is he gave me 90s alternative, and he gave me 90s rap that's just led into what I like today. And, dude, I, I'm with you. I don't even listen to lyrics that much. I mean, I, I'll sing the lyrics, but if... – I mean, I do. I do, but the, for me, if I listen to a song within the first 30 seconds, if, yes. if the beat does not get my attention, I'm like, next – Exactly. <laughs> there's, I think the same way about rap music, like because there's no getting past that first thirty seconds. If you go through that first thirty seconds, no. they haven't grabbed you yet. They're not going to grab you. It's not going to happen. And, and like I said, I can say that I do listen to other music. I do listen to country. I do oh, listen yeah, to yeah, some yeah. other stuff. But if I have my choice, we all know what my favorite is. So it's just, it's no different with any other genre as well. 
if it's not something that interests you in the first 30 seconds, we're skipping it. So I, I feel the same way about when I, I, I really like Texas country. I really like country in general. And I feel the same way about that kind of music. I mean, if it's not getting me in the first 30 mm-hmm. seconds, I'm really not going to like it probably. It's, uh, it's kind of like walking in a pen full of club calves. Exactly. It's that your sucker instinct. don't hit you in the first 30 seconds, you don't need to own him. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Use your instinct. Uh, who's your favorite rapper? Oh, boy. It's kind of changed over the years, probably. Probably, uh, if I could do my top five. Yeah, do your top five. Easiest. So, top five artists right now for me, probably Young Thug. Trippy Red, Lil Uzi Vert, who else? Juice World, got to have him in the top Oh, R.I.P. And, and Young Nudie. Those are my five favorites right now. So you like, um, uh, you, you, you're kind of following the trends. I mean, I, you're, you're with this kind of new style rap that's coming out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, they're, that, the younger generation is a lot like I just described. I mean, it's, it's hype music it's about upbeat energy um it's quick i've been to some concerts personally obviously i mean it's it is a riot there everyone's there to have fun and and as far as i'm concerned music is supposed to cheer you up no one wants to listen to music to make you sad or make you angry (laughs) you're supposed to want to listen to music to cheer you up so stuff that that gets you going and gets you pumped up that's kind of what i'm into so i uh i've been listening and i know there's going to be some some listeners going to go uh I don't know some of those. I'm going to have to go research that because I don't know what he's talking about. Exactly, dude. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I mean, I just downloaded uh, Lil Uzi's two uh, newest albums that he just released, and I liked them both. They're incredible. I think the second album is a lot better, but uh, like, as soon the as you said album. Lil Uzi, I'm just like, yeah, like that's that's hype music. Like, I'm gonna That's going to get me I pumped up. Yeah, that's going to get me <laughs> pumped up. And anyone who doesn't, We've probably alienated some people listening. They probably don't even like rap probably. music. Probably. Like, well, I really liked both of those guys until they said that. <laughs> until they said they like this trippy red fine. guy. <laughs> they can have their opinions. It's a free country, so it's exactly. all good. Yeah, we can all listen to music. It's It doesn't really matter. All right, back it, to... It doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't change the type of person I am or the yeah. type of person you are, or anyone for that matter. But Everyone and can I, have a choice. So. I think you made a good point. It it helps. I mean, it adds some character. You, you like sharing your story with other people and that's an important aspect of your life that you, you can't really hide from people. So I think it's, I think it's good. No, that you share sure. it. And, I, and I've always been upfront about that. I'm not like, Oh, I don't want to tell anybody what I'm interested in. Like my, I'm an open book. You want to learn who I am, follow me on social media or get to know me because uh, you'll learn the type of person I am. And you'll, you'll, you'll learn to understand why I do the things I do, why I'm interested in the things I'm interested in. So, Okay, here's a question out of left field. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? Ooh, that's a good one. Do you want to think about it? We Hon- can come back to it. I mean, honestly, right now, <laughs> there's a pretty big one right now going on. <laughs> and I, I think it's kind of going to trump everything right now. Not to be uh, full of puns there either, but uh, this coronavirus thing has got to be, to me, I just... There's a lot of things that don't 100% up. I'm not saying that there's not a virus. I'm not saying that there's not a need to have some sort of, not panic, but just precaution, per se. But my gut is just telling me that there's more to this than they're telling us, and there's more to this than they're ever going to tell us or that we'll ever know. And 
to see the things that have happened over the last week even, I, I just I have to think that this is probably the biggest conspiracy that's hit the U.S. since I don't know when. Because a lot of stuff just does not make sense. Yeah, yeah, I've I've thought a little. I love conspiracy theories, dude. We can talk about conspiracy theories till the cows come home. <laughs> and uh, I've thought about this a little bit, and I don't really think it's like I've thought about it from a political standpoint, like for the election coming mm-hmm. up. And I've thought about it from that aspect, and I I just can't wrap my head around that. But I think you're right in terms of us not knowing all the facts because. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is just mass hysteria right now on social media, and like we said, I mean, it's, I, it's a domino effect right now. What, it's one, crazy. One place or town or city or event center says, "Well, we're going to do this," and it's like no one else wants to go against the grain and be like, "Well, is that a little extra?" As soon as somebody did it, it's like, "Oh, they did it. We got to do it too," and and then they do it, and then well, those two people did it. We got to do it too, and it's just, it's in my perspective, it's spiraled completely out of control, and everyone's just taking the precaution of just canceling everything now because they don't want to be the one that didn't yeah. <laughs> just in case this is the really, you know, the apocalypse, so to speak. Um, but I just, I can't see, I can't see how it could be um, just 100%. I mean, we've had other viruses, even the common flu has had more impact as far as death rate and stuff in this country. And so for me to think that, uh, what they're calling a mild illness. I, I'm not saying that people can't get sick because there is people that are susceptible to things more than others. So, and and that's totally understandable. But the everyday person that is healthy and takes good care of themselves, washes their hands like a normal person. Um, this is something that's completely recovered. It's just uh, the symptoms are not like, it's not the zombie apocalypse. So I don't understand why we're treating it like it is. Yeah, I... <sighs> I don't know. I, and I look at the stock market and I'm like, there's no, like, why is this crashing so much? You look at the, like, you look behind the stock market and the, like the bond markets are really, really good. And then they're really, really bad. And then oil's really good. And then really bad. Like, I'm just like, what is going on in the world right now? There has to be some more. I think a lot of it just has to be there's just unanswered questions. And yeah. so when people don't know the answer to something, they panic. Yeah. If they can't 100% understand a situation, they just assume that the worst. So if it's not this, then the world's coming to an end. So panic. Well, <laughs> I, don't <know>. I mean, <laughs> we're all going to have a really good time self quarantining <laughs> and whoever, yes. who started Thank the God rumor that who started the rumor that we're going to be locked down for 14 days. That's what I want to know. Who started that? Have you heard that rumor? Yeah, because I've I've been hearing that. One. I have been hearing stuff like that. I've heard stuff as far as there's a rumor going around that there's going to be martial law implemented. And oh gosh, yeah, and the, the national guard's going to come out we're and they're going to take care of everything. So I don't know. I don't know what's to come of it. Um, I hope all of it blows over. I hope we're able to recover from all of this. And and there's not. I mean, I know there's obviously been drastic. Um, complications and people's lives have been affected negatively already. So hopefully not too many of them to an extent where they're, they can't recover from it, but I really do hope that we can get past all of this and, and go back to the way things were and kind of get things fixed because there's a lot of things hanging in the balance right now. And, uh, 
it's not just, you know, things like these livestock shows getting can I mean, we're talking about people's livelihoods. So yeah. um, I hope we can get all that back to normal because it's it's going to be a really sad day if this continues to downward spiral. So here's where I'm scared about it in the show industry is I don't care about these people that are going to uh, Houston. I do care. Let me let me rephrase that. Houston getting canceled. OIE getting canceled. That's awful. What I'm really, really worried about is local county fairs all across the country getting canceled. I know there's a lot of county fairs down in my area that are about to start up and that might get canceled. And for those kids, yeah, it's that definitely are, a trickle down effect. Well, yeah, for sure. and and for those kids that are first year families, first year kids that are just gonna have to take a wash basically i mean take it's their... a pretty tough experience your first time out oh gosh it's got to be horrific and it's i think it's i think it's going to have effect on an effect on the the overall exhibitor numbers at uh, across the country if this just keeps going like it, it is going and hopefully this all blows over before the huge july and august county fair rush but there's no telling what's going to happen Right. Right now, there's a lot of unanswered questions, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the future. So, like I said, I hope, I hope we get some answers here soon. I hope, I hope we're listening to this podcast six months from now, going, "Man, I'm glad that went by fast." Yes. <laughs> well, and I've got a trip to Europe in July, so this better, <laughs> I mean, this better blow over by then, because I want to go. Let's um, let's get back on track. <laughs> yeah. No, that was a good. That was a good tangent we went on. That's, that was a good that's little good. tangent. Now uh, we're here, we're nearing the end here. I want to ask you what's. I asked you what you wanted when you first started Competitive Edge. What does the future hold for your business and for your company? Well, it's a lot of the same thing, really. Um, just continued growth. Um, we're always welcoming new families into our, you know, customer base. Uh, wanted to grow new kids. Uh, there's, it's the gradual progression of everything right we're going to grow them towards their senior year and then they're going to be done and we need that next string to, to start the cycle again right so um just trying to keep younger people wanting to show livestock right now is is a big push for us for sure and i think anybody in our position that's because that pertains to our survival realistically so um obviously want to grow that uh part of part of me wants to try to slow down a little bit personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm getting to the age where I, if I'm going to settle down and, and, and get married and have kids, I probably need to start thinking about <laughs> not being on the road so much and stuff like that. <laughs> but at the same time, like I said, I love what I do. And there's a lot of people that are counting on me as well, families and exhibitors and readers and whatnot. So I get that, that they're able to do what they're able to do because I'm, coming to them and, and providing the service too. So, yeah. um, but yeah, as far as, as far as the future, just continue to, to try to take notches on the belt, you know, more accomplish. There's, there's obviously there's goals that I've got set, you know, certain shows that I'd like to accomplish to win, um, certain feats I'd like to, to make happen that anybody in this business wants to make happen. You know, the more success you can have, the better, just, like I said, just to try to make those families that have done business with you, you know, reach those accomplishments is, is everything. So the more of those we can do, the better. So, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and, um, I wanted to talk about, I mean, we 
we're talking about uh, competitive edge. I wanted to talk about uh, the chosen one uh, at Denver this year because mm-hmm. it was, I mean, it was a pretty powerful thing. I mean, it took over social media over Denver by storm. And I, I couldn't look anywhere. I, it might just be the people that I follow. I mean, I'm <laughs> Jace, Jace Tarbell posts 12,000 times a day. So I, he's on my, he's on my Facebook <laughs> all the time. So um, I saw it a bunch, but dude, it looked, it looked awesome. It looked, yeah, it, he it looked was, awesome. Uh, that was a very humbling experience to be involved uh, in the marketing of that bull and promotion side of things. Um, that was actually a, a calf I'd seen this summer. Um, funny story. So I was actually out with Cropa, the guy that raised that calf, and we were looking at him on the Ranger um, along with some other sibs to him. And I thought he was incredible. I mean, at that age already, I was like, that one needs to be a bull. Uh, We should talk about maybe doing something, you know, whatever you think. And it wasn't 10 minutes later, I got a phone call that a tornado had hit my place. So I was about seven hours from home and I told him I need to go. We're going to have to have this conversation some Oh, my time. gosh. Like a like a big tornado? A big one, yeah. Oh. Um, I can't remember now. It's been – it was in the last week of May or first few days of June. I can't exactly remember now. I'd have to look back at my phone. But uh, it was a big tornado. I think it was an F4, F5. It ran for like 32 miles. Um, wow. Came right basically to the back of my property line and picked up over top of my pasture and dropped back down on the side of my property line and kept wiping stuff out. Um, took out a lot of housing development, a lot, we had a lot of tree damage and some minimal building damage. Luckily, I don't know how my, honestly, when I drove in my driveway the next morning, cause I drove through the night to get as far as I could. And then I thought I better stop because it's dark. I, don't, I knew there was no power there. So I'm like, I might as well stay in a hotel somewhere where I know there's power. And, uh, when I drove down my driveway that morning, it was a pretty gut wrenching feeling looking at it because I didn't, I didn't understand how I had anything left because the mangled mess that was there, the man upstairs was watching out for us because it, it missed my house by inches in some places. So it's pretty scary. But anyways, enough about that. We got that cleaned up and we're, we're pretty well back to square one again. I mean, the rest of the neighborhood's not, but we lucked out as far as that goes. But, um, so we reconvene, um, Blaine Rogers, um, had also seen that calf and we do a lot of stuff together. He lives just about an hour and 20 minutes North of me here. So, uh, we've been doing a lot of business together and whatnot. And he was able to get that, that calf to his place. And, and I came up to look at him there in the fall. And, and I just said, I said, some people involved in this bull I'm committing right now, 100%, anything you need from me, promotion wise, idea wise, think tank wise, I will sell semen on that bull. I think he's incredible. I think that is the best club calf bull I've ever seen in my life. We need to make it happen. So I kind of let him drive the boat as far as, as kind of going forward on that. And he got some great partners involved, Gensini Show Cattle and, and Guyer Cattle Company. And uh, Blaine and I loaded that bull up on the trailer and headed to Denver and met the guys out there. And we did what we do and, and promoted the bull out there. And it went off incredibly. Um, I've taken bulls to Denver Every year since, I mean, if we if we include when I was at Troush's since 2011, I've, I've been there with bulls on display. So, been a part of a lot of really great bulls and a lot of successful bulls. Don't get me wrong, but I've never been involved with a group of people and have a bull in Denver like that that just literally 
it was all anybody could talk about. And it was so cool. I mean, it was, I'll never forget it. So I surrounded myself with some really great, great people and uh, very fortunate that they involved me in it and gave me that opportunity to kind of add my expertise to it and, and help kind of think tank the whole thing together with them. So it was, it was a blast. Yeah. And now you're going to be on the, uh, or he's going to be on the cover of Showtimes. Um, yeah, actually the new issue that just came out, he's on the front cover and then they also did a full page ad. I can't remember. It's in the first however many pages, I think they, they did his full page ad as well. Yeah. Check that stuff out. If you've got a Showtime subscription, if you get it in, check that out. It's, yeah, I bet it's pretty sweet. Do, do they do a little interview yes. with you? Um, they actually did some, like an overview of the yards, um, going on. And they, they took some really cool footage of us getting that bull ready and like walking okay. on the display and, and whatnot and the crowds and whatnot. Um, didn't really do any actual interviews with us, but it, honestly, the crowd was so packed around there. I don't know how they would, yeah. I've never seen wall. It was like, it was like black Friday shopping at the mall at that display deal this weekend, that weekend. And it was, it was incredible. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's, that's got to make you feel very, very proud of what you're doing. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you can, when you can be involved in, in, like I said, it's not just about having an animal that's that good. It's about surrounding yourself. Like I said, I'm always big on, on the people that you do business with too. So just being involved with good people and, and just getting to experience that all with them and seeing the excitement on their face too. And you just kind of feed off of each other. It was just the whole experience was very surreal. It was super, super surreal. Yeah. That's yeah. That's that's got to feel great, and the pictures look great. And uh, I'm sure I'll have to look in the Showtime's magazine and check out that that display. Because I mean, I saw pictures, and I I didn't wasn't able to go to Denver this year, so I kind of missed out on seeing them live. But the pictures and everything it just looked incredible. You guys did a great job, uh, um, kind of promoting that bowl. It was it was pretty sweet. But, well, we tried we tried our hardest. <laughs> now. <laughs> We've actually got we've actually got our new semen catalog about to come out. This uh, should be out hopefully this week. We're just finishing it up, and we've got a really cool um, full page coverage on him in there too. So sweet, sweet, yeah, check that out too. Um, I ask all my guests this like towards the end, and this is I didn't give this to you in your outline, but um, I want you to just kind of dig deep and give some advice. I know you've got some in you. You're you're good at talking. You're a good public speaker. I can tell that already. I want you to give some advice to to the young people, um, the old people, to anybody that's listening. Uh, I I want to I want you to tell them what what to do with their life and how to make it better. And because I and I don't think you have all the answers, but Raymond, you you've been successful. You also you have to know something. So. Tell us your secrets, basically. <laughs> you want to know the secret recipe, huh? I want to know the secret recipe. <laughs> well, honestly, um, I guess if I could tell anyone, especially in the younger generation, that looks up to you know people in my position, because I'm obviously not the only one. There's a lot of very successful people that do this for a living, and uh, we all kind of try to pay attention to each other so we can kind of go on the right path, but... The number one thing, and I know this is going to sound so cliche, it sounds like something out of a movie, is if you have your mind set on something and and you want to do it, like put all of your effort towards it. Do not halfway it. Don't do something else because somebody tells you you should do that instead. 
if you, like I said, if you have a dream, chase it because you only get one chance to do that. So I'm a perfect example of that. I could have settled in and took over the farm with my dad and been completely content. Um, but I probably would have regretted not chasing my dream. And this can be anything. It doesn't even need to be in livestock. If if you want to be a professional sports, anything, I mean, you can pick any avenue you want, but go with what your gut tells you because there's a reason it does that. It's because that is truly what you're passionate about. And when you're passionate about something, you're going to put in more effort. So don't hold back on it. Just go after it because what you're going to find is there's going to be other people along the way that'll see that talent that you've got and that drive you've got. And they're going to take you under their wing and they're going to help you because you've got potential. And that's part of the reason why I'm where I'm at today, because other people saw my potential and helped me along the way. Cause do not get me wrong. I didn't get to where I was because of just me by myself. Um, I had to have the drive to want to do it, but I've had a lot of help along the way and I appreciate every person that's ever helped me. So, but you have to put the effort in to even be noticed. Yep. So your drive and your persistence has to be 100% at all yep. times. And, and it doesn't instinct. matter what it is. And right. your instinct. Yeah. You can be really good at a lot of things, but you can be really great at the thing you're the best at. So if that's really what you want to do, go after it because the only one that's stopping you is you. Bingo. Well, Raymond, hey, I want to uh, thank you for taking time out of your night. Uh, I know we've been trying to set this up to do it for a little while, so uh, or about a week and a half. So I'm I'm glad we finally got to do it, and I um, I thank you again. I thought it was a good interview, dude. I mean, you gave us a lot to think about. You gave us a lot to hear. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, when you reached out to me, I actually was quite flattered, to be honest with you, because. Uh, it's, it's one of those deals where you work really hard and you kind of have your head down and you're doing your thing and you don't really know who might notice that you're putting in that kind of effort. So to be, to be recognized like that, I thought I was, it was really flattering. So I really appreciate it. Well, and I'm just a small little podcast, so don't be too flattered. But. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, anyone that wants to listen to my story, I'll give them props because I appreciate it. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to hear your story and I, I thank you again. And, uh, I'm glad you wanted to do it. I felt flattered that you, I feel flattered that anybody actually wants to sit down for an hour and a half with me and just discuss their life. So, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, uh, you're going to have to be a reoccurring guest now. Um, so we'll have to, we'll <laughs> hey, have to whenever you, you need a guest appearance, holler at me. Uh, we'll have to get you on again, and then we can go into um, some more specific items, maybe that we like to talk about, maybe some conspiracy theories, maybe some music topics that we can talk about. Uh, I think we can get something done. <laughs> hey, I'm always available. That All right, sweet, dude. Well, uh, I thank you again, and I'll talk to you later. All right, thank you. Bye. Time's limited, so you must listen carefully. What the heck did you think of that one, guys? He's a pretty incredible guy, and I, I'm glad he's a, I'm glad he likes talking. That's all I'm going to say. Is because I like talking too, but he gave me a whole bunch to work with. I hope you guys liked it. We took a couple tangents a little far, but I think that's okay. I think that's okay. And I think uh, if you're listening to this and you think we talked about conspiracy theories, coronavirus, and uh, music too much, well, then maybe you really don't like us as people, okay? We're just trying to show you our true selves. That's all we're trying to do here, okay? So buck up. 
and uh, get used to it because we're going to talk about some personal stuff. I'm sure no one's thinking that. Everyone enjoyed it. Everyone had a great time. I know you did. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Come back for more. Um, If you listen religiously, weekly, I'm sorry. Okay, I will address it. This one is late. I'm sorry. If you are listening to this one in the future and are like, oh, wow, Ken, good job. Just forget it, okay? I'm a human being. Coronavirus just struck I'm self-quarantining, I'm social distancing, I'm doing all the things, okay? But it was over the phone, Ken, you didn't have to meet with them, you should have just done an interview, whatever, okay? Corona, I want to lime with it. All right, come back for more, follow me on all my social medias, at the show pod, and I love you guys. Have a good day, have a good week, survive Corona. One more I love you, bye.